Let's turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read verses 17 through 34 this morning. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul addresses some matters that are of concern related to public worship. Last week, you'll remember if you were with us that we saw how how the glory of God is made manifest in the genders, that man and woman together working in unison inside the church brings glory to God. And so today, the Apostle Paul turns and, and pivots to the Lord's Supper. And I suspect that Probably in a lot of churches, the Lord's Supper is an underappreciated sacrament. But the reality of what the Scripture teaches is that Jesus is present communing with us. And so in Corinth, the, the, the problem with the Lord's Supper was it was worse than undervalued. It was, in fact, deformed. So much so that it was not a blessing, but it was causing harm. And so we'll read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, through the end of the chapter. And remember that, that this is God's word to his people. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give direction when I come. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the richness of your scripture. And pray that you would attend the preaching of your word with the help of your Holy Spirit so that we, your people, might have ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church. And Father, I ask that you would again use an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The images have always been stark. That's the way God 
designed it in the beginning. Think of the Hebrew slaves in their houses on the night that the Passover meal was first instituted. I mean, they'd already seen the Nile River turned to blood. They'd seen frogs come up out of the Nile and cover the land of Egypt. They'd seen the dust on the ground turn to a plague of gnats. Swarms of flies overtake the house of Pharaoh. They'd also seen all the livestock in Egypt dead. They'd witnessed their captors, the Egyptians covered with boils all over their bodies. They had seen hail drop from the sky and fall everywhere over Egypt except where they lived. They watched crops destroyed. Locusts. And then they watched three days of straight darkness. When the sun should shine, there was no darkness. And so it was that the Lord made a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel so that no plague fell on the people of Israel who dwelt in the land of Goshen. Don't you know when the elders went out to get the lambs and select them and kill those lambs and drain the blood into the basin? Don't you know when they dipped the hyssop branch into the blood of that lamb and wiped that blood over the doorpost? That the image was stark. And I suspect that some of the people of Israel are beginning to connect the dots. It's going to take a blood sacrifice to shield us from this angel of death that God says is coming. Later that evening, they're in their own houses and they eat the roasted lamb. They eat unleavened bread with bitter herbs. They go to bed. And midnight comes, and the people of Israel are awakened to the shrill cries of the people of Egypt as fathers and mothers mourn in the middle of the night. And the Bible says someone is dead in every single household in Egypt. But in Goshen, everything's quiet, everyone is safe. They were that close to death, but spared by grace. The image was stark, and that's the way God designed it. Somewhere around 1,400 years later, Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples and he celebrated this Passover meal. And on that night, he explained that the Passover, this bread, points to me. The wine, like that lamb's blood, points to me. Those bitter herbs, I'll drink the bitter punishment of God's wrath all by myself. The image was stark, and that's the way God designed it. And Jesus said all of that imagery is meant to be repeated in worship until I return. And so when the saints at Corinth begin to mistreat this treasure the way a a two-year-old would mistreat a family heirloom, the Apostle Paul says that's got to stop. And he corrects it saying this, the Lord's Supper visibly connects you to the death of Christ. It must be treated with reverence. 
And so the passage before us reminds us to eat for the better, proclaim the Lord's death, examine your heart. We're going to start with the call to eat for the better. In Corinth, the Lord's Supper is really not for the better. He says it's actually for the worse. And you remember, don't you, that from chapters 8 to chapter 10, there's a warning to the Christians in Corinth. They're supposed to live like the followers of Christ, not like the pagans that they used to be. They're to break with that pagan past. And then at chapter 11, there's a shift in content. And he begins to deal with the concerns over pagan over worship. Verse 2 said something that was profound. He commends them. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. The tone last week is so gentle. The underlying application of head coverings, that's not the big issue. It's a symptom of the big issue. Something's very different, though. When the Apostle Paul pivots to talk about the Lord's Supper, look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In fact, I I believe there's got to be divisions because some people stand out as actually honoring the Lord in this. Divisions, factions in the church. It's a word that that, that began in chapter 1, verse 10. Schisma. It's a word from which we get schisms. What's the big issue in Corinth? That's the big issue in Corinth. And that word... Schisma has been repeated throughout the text and it appears here again. So I want you to notice the contrast in verse 17. The people of God come together, but they're divided, verse 18. Verse 17, the people of God come together, but there are factions, verse 19. Paul says, what use is it to come together in worship if you rip yourselves apart spiritually? If the gathering of the saints is a division of the saints, what good is it if the worship of God tells a totally different story about Christ and His gospel than Jesus Himself communicated? It's going to become obvious in a minute. This this divide is entirely on economic lines. Those who have food and wealth versus those who don't have enough to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I know that that really does seem impossible Today, you come to church, we provide you with a little COVID-friendly cup, and it's got cellophane that seals it, and nobody touches it except you. The early church didn't always know how to handle these matters. Here I want to point you to the value of of the honesty of the passage. To appreciate how honest the Bible is, the, the church is actually misusing the Lord's Supper in Corinth. And so if you really wanted to edit out the Scriptures, as some critical scholars claim, like some of this is from the Apostle Paul, some of this is added as a later edition, you would never let this kind of foolishness slip past the editor's pen. Surely. I mean, you don't want the watching world to know that there was a time in church history when the sacraments, which were intended to be used in worship, were being treated so poorly. And so this tension between honesty and correction actually adds a measure of integrity to the text. Take a look at verse 20. When you come together, it's it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Jesus meant to represent his own death and his own character in the meal. And what happened is something entirely different. Look at verse 22. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Jesus instituted this communal meal. But these folks in in worship celebrate their own private dinner party. Now here's what I think happened. Churches in the first century do not have fancy alumni centers on the edge of major universities to rent and they certainly don't have tall steepled churches. So the early church gathered outside or they came into the larger homes of some of the church members. Those who had bigger homes could accommodate more people. That's how the church began. But as soon as the church begins to grow in various places, they begin to have to get creative about how to gather for worship. I want to make sure you understand this is actually not an affirmation of the church, the house church model. If anything, it's a reminder of the potential dangers of that model. But imagine that you're one of the people in Corinth and you own a big house. You came to faith in Christ from a, from a background of dinner parties, feasts with your pagan friends. And then soon, after you begin to be convert, after you're converted, some of your friends begin to be converted as well. At Sunday, you've, you've had wonderful songs sung, and you've prayed in worship, and you've listened to a sermon, and now it's time for the Lord's Supper. Are you a mature enough believer in your large house to make sure that the poor members of the church come and sit by you in the dining room? Or would you rather eat with people that you already know, that you knew from way back? You remember Cletus, Dimitri? You grew up with them. You were both educated at the finest Greek school in Corinth. I don't want Dimitri to have to go out to the patio and sit with people he doesn't know. I'm going to have him sit right beside me at this meal. And so the host owns the house and the host gets his friends to sit with him in the dining room. And the result is a, is a split between the haves and the have-nots. The wealthy and the not so wealthy. And as it devolved, Beverly asks Clarabelle to bring the potato salad. Susie's going to bring the dessert and Cletus is going to bring the wine. And now you've got a full-blown dinner party. It's going to be fun. Right after church. And the poor people are on the patio outside. Of course, you know, once the elements are passed in the dining room, there's really not enough to take out to the patio. And nobody on the patio brought their own elements anyway. They didn't even have enough sufficient bread or wine to share. And so it's an economic problem. Which amplifies the the issue within the church, and that is divisions. But unfortunately, it's not just a Corinthian temptation. It's not even a Lord's Supper mistake. It's a human heart problem. I want to be with people. 
I want to isolate myself with those who I already enjoy. I'd like to spend my time with the people who are already in my social sphere. In some cases, it's those who have similar affluence. And here's the painful reality. The Bible calls this kind of behavior, verse 22, despising the church of God, hating the body of Christ, humiliating those who have nothing, a meal that's meant to communicate love, depicts the hatred of human heart. A meal which reminds us that Christ was humiliated for sinners of every stripe, A meal which is meant to celebrate the equal ground at the foot of the cross echoes the exact same hierarchy that the world has. The haves and the have-nots. And the haves are feasting and the have-nots starve. It's a mess. But says Paul, the Lord's Supper connects you to the death of Christ. You must eat, moreover, live in a manner that exudes this gospel message. Sinclair Ferguson rightly says that the Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. This has much broader implications than the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? Do you show favoritism inside the walls of the church? Do you isolate yourselves with those that you already know, those who you feel connected to socially, economically, those that you got a history with? But let's be really clear in the passage, the onus is not on the poor man. To make his way over to the rich and say, hey, would you notice me? Would you recognize me? Hey, could I have a seat in the dining room? The Bible says the wealthy need to to share this heart of Christ. How can I relationally embrace the good of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who belong to this body of believers? Who is marginalized in our context? And how can I pursue them? Will I come to them and welcome them with the same zeal and warmth that I would give to someone who could do something for me? The Lord's Supper visibly connects you to the death of Christ. Eat for the better. Secondly, proclaim the Lord's death. Now, if the next few verses sound really familiar to you, that's because these are, these are the words of institution. These are the words that Jesus spoke over the Passover meal. And when it was converted into the Lord's Supper, he transformed it to his purpose. This is what I say when we deliver the Lord's Supper. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul says I received it from Jesus and I turned and I gave it to you Corinthians when I planted the church. I want to examine several words or phrases that are used in these passages to say what did Jesus mean? Verse, excuse me, first Jesus gives thanks to God. The giver of all things. But he's also giving thanks that this is a physical way to show a picture of who he is and what he's about to do. Bread and wine. Body and blood. Jesus takes the bread and he breaks that bread. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. 
And from the moment that he breaks that bread and gives it to his disciples, he means, I am spiritually present in this sacramental meal every time it's taken in worship. Now, what actually happens on the night of the Passover is what actually happens every time we celebrate this meal. Jesus didn't mean, I'm breaking apart my actual skin and my actual flesh. I'm giving it to you right now. That would have been a denial of the humanity of Christ. He's sitting at the table. Right over there by John. On the ground. And his human body is not being torn apart in that moment and separated into pieces while he sits over there on the other side of the words of the table. Does the bread then somehow become the body of Christ as it's ingested like dough being put into an oven becomes bread? Well, that view would also be a denial of the humanity of Christ. Unleavened bread didn't go across the table into Peter's mouth and become the skin and body of Jesus. Jesus is sitting there with him. Well, Eric... Perhaps the Lord's Supper is different the first time it's celebrated from every other time that it's celebrated. In other words, maybe Jesus later causes the bread to become the body and the wine to become the blood. Friends, the most central teaching in all of Christianity is the resurrection. There is no more central teaching in all of the church than that. Jesus rose in bodily form, and not just did he rise from the dead, but his actual body today is ascended in heavenly places, and it retains in those heavenly places all the same qualities of divinity and humanity fully. And so it is that in his glorified state, Jesus is still fully God and fully man. And the Bible tells us that that is essential for our salvation. He is the one who is present with the Father pleading on our behalf. And it's essential that we have a Christ in heavenly places who is both God and man. The church settled this early on. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 affirmed what had already been dealt with multiple times. The humanity of Christ has been taught from the beginning. Moreover, some of you aren't even asking the questions I'm telling you about. For 11 centuries, the universal church never held that the body of Christ and the wine, excuse me, that the bread becomes the body of Christ, that the wine becomes the blood of Christ. And then in the 12th century, the Catholic Church invented a doctrine called transubstantiation. And that doctrine is formed out of nothing. Jesus is not saying, I am physically present in this bread and in this wine. Here's what he's also not saying. He's also not saying, I'm not here at all. He's not saying, what I need you to do is remember me, and that's it. It's a common error to take the phrase, this do in remembrance of me, to mean that's all that there is in the Lord's Supper. And so what I have to do when the elements are passed to me or I pick them up at the front door is I I, I need to squint and think really, really hard that Jesus died for me. 
and my memory is not very good. Somebody's going to twitch. <clears throat> Somebody's going to clear their throat. Suddenly my memory is lost and I've forgotten. Is it only a remembrance? Now that's what, the, that's what could rightly be called a real absence. As if there's nothing but a memory going on at the Lord's Supper. I'll tell you where that view came from. It came from paganism. A wealthy person dies. He wants himself to be remembered over the years, so he leaves financial resources to his family to celebrate his memory. And so every year on his death, there's a memorial meal for the dead. Well, that's not what Jesus is doing. He says there's more going on here. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus gives his disciples and his church a meal which allows them to to hold a physical representation of the spiritual reality. And he gives you a sign tangibly held and it also is a seal, a promise of his unending love. Just as a wedding ring is to a marriage. Sinclair Ferguson describes the sacrament as if Jesus is saying, I love you, and here's my ring. Jesus is spiritually present when you take the Lord's Supper. Now, how is it that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes? Here's what's happening. When you take that bread, by faith, you are declaring Christ died. And this bread, when it is torn, in eating that bread and drinking that cup, I'm declaring Christ didn't just die, he died for me. And you're laying hold of his death by faith. And you affirm in faith that Christ Jesus is your crucified Savior. His own physical body was beaten, pierced, punished. And it was beaten, pierced, and punished. Not for some vague, undesignated purpose. But to pay for the actual sins that I've committed. And you have committed. So to proclaim the Lord's death is to proclaim the gospel to yourself. Every time you take A kind of declaration that says, one day I will see the Lord Jesus again, for he is returning in love to claim his people back. One writer points to the old African-American spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? If you understand the word proclaim, then the answer to that question is unequivocally yes. I was there every time. Yes. So verse 27 is a warning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. See, because the supper is what Paul says it is, it must be taken with reverence. And now here I want to offer a pastoral comment. Every person who takes the Lord's Supper is unworthy. I am unworthy of the very least of the mercy and grace that's been given to me by my Father in heaven. Paul doesn't say whoever takes the Lord's Supper as an unworthy person, but rather in an unworthy manner. 
And so if you want to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, then take it like a starving sinner who needs nourishment. How would you take the sacrament in an unworthy way? Like a blank ritual? Separated from the preaching of God's word? As if good deeds plus my consuming of the sacrament equals salvation? Take it frivolously? As if the rite itself puts God in your debt and earns his love? You are completely unworthy. But you take this meal in a worthy manner when you come in faith. Weak as that faith may be, and you believe the good news, this Christ shed His blood to pay for actual sins that I have committed. And His sacrifice is abundant to buy my salvation. The Lord's Supper visibly connects you to the death of Christ. We must eat for the better, proclaim the Lord's death, and finally examine your heart. And so he goes from warning to application. Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So this has two applications. One that's very broad and one more specific. Uh, Broadly, you and I should constantly be those who examine our own hearts. And the Lord's Supper is one place to do that. Have I made a public profession of my own faith in Jesus Christ? Am I harboring any unrepentant sin? Am I unwilling to bring that sin to the cross of Jesus Christ and lay that sin down in repentance and faith? It's actually the same self-examination that Paul mentions to this same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourself, he says, to see whether you're in the faith. More specifically to the issue in Corinth. To discern the body is to discern the implications of the body. To live as if I am one of a unified, equal body of believers. And so the body of Christ can never be rightly represented with me and Jesus up on a mountain with some Fanta that's grape flavored and a cracker. The Lord's Supper must always be connected to corporate worship and it must always be a part of a local body of believers. In fact, that's the nature of what happened in Corinth. The the Lord's Supper is separated from the worship and its misuse tells a lie about the unifying nature of Christ's death. It's the reason that the Lord's Supper is never to be taken separate from the context of public worship. It's not a pickup sacrament that you can grab and take home with your family. It's not a supper to be taken divorced from the preaching of God's word. Because as one pastor said, words heard through the ear are dramatized through the eye and the hand to assure them to the heart. Word And sacrament. They must come together to drive the gospel into your heart. So in Corinth, the failure to examine themselves has led to discipline. Look at verse 30. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
Friends, not every single time that you get sick have you taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In this case, the Lord Jesus delivers to Paul a prophetic insight into the condition of the church at Corinth. And so you should not always draw a connection, a cause and effect relationship in your own life or in someone else's life either. God himself reveals this misuse in this church. And he says, I want to show you how this misuse is being used for God's purposes to discipline my people. Some people get sick. Some people have actually died. And they died because they're pretending to proclaim the Lord's death. And all they really want is a big dinner party with their friends. And so it is that this cruelty is akin to perjury in that it tells a lie about the gospel for those who don't have money. And yet in God's mercy, all of this is a kind of discipline. Verse 32, so that we may not be condemned with the rest of the world. Verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come together, eat to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come, it will not be for judgment About the other things, I'll give direction when I come. He says, basically, I want you to turn your dinner party back into the Lord's Supper, into the sacrament that was instituted, so that each person, rich or poor, gets to take the elements. And friends, this is the biblical reason why in this church, I ask you to hold the elements while we have them in our hands and we take it all at once. And there's clearly more that he needs to say to this particular church, but that's not for the rest of us. He just needs to address some specific issues in God's providence. This is enough. Now, to close, let me say this. Why is it essential to you and to your Christian faith that you relish the Lord's Supper this way? That the Lord's Supper must visibly connect you to the death of Christ. Because from birth, you've been connected to another death. You've been connected to the death of Adam. In the Bible, the first time you hear the words take and eat, Adam and Eve take and eat. And as they take and eat, mankind is forever connected to sin and death through Adam. Which is why God in His grace determined to visibly connect you to another death. Derek Kidner says it required the sending of the Son of God into the world and his dying on the cross before take and eat become words of salvation. I want to be quite connected to the death of my Lord Jesus because from the very beginning I've been connected to death. And here is the offer of the gospel. For you and me. Let's pray.